0: God's Call for Men. That is the topic we'll discuss today right here on the Christian Realview Radio program, where the mission is to sharpen the biblical worldview of Christians and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm David Wheaton, the host. The Christian Realview is a nonprofit listener-supported radio ministry. Thank you to you, our listeners, for your prayer, encouragement, and support. You can connect with us by calling our toll-free number, 1-888-646-2233, writing to Box 401, Excelsior, Minnesota, 55331, or visiting our website, thechristianworldview.org. Before we get into our topic for the day, on behalf of my mom and the rest of our family, I would like to express our sincere gratitude. To the many friends and others who have offered their sympathy, prayer, and encouragement to us over the heaven-going of my dad on February 1st, we have been deeply touched and bolstered by your kind words and love. 1 Thessalonians 4 has been of immense help to us, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, who have died who have fallen asleep, who have already died for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Comfort one another with these words. There has been lots of grieving and tears over losing the beloved patriarch of our family. Consider how my 89 year old mother is feeling. She has known and loved my dad from age 15, spent every day with him for 68 years of marriage, and yet she has been remarkably, actually supernaturally strong and full of faith. We praise God for that. We are full of assurance that dad is in the presence of Jesus Christ, who he believed in as his Savior and Lord. And we are certain that Christ will return to resurrect my dad, giving him a new eternal body. We buried my dad's earthly body this past Wednesday. I was dreading the day, but it turned out to be a sweet time with family Remembering dad and being reminded of the promises of God for the believer. Another chapter of scripture has been immensely helpful as first Corinthians chapter 15, starting here in verse 50 of this read a portion. Now I say this brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable body inherit the imperishable body. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all, Christians, be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body, earthly body, must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our certainty for my dad and for all believers. The fact of dad's future resurrection to get an imperishable body for eternity is based on the fact of Christ's resurrection. Since God raised Christ from the grave, he will also raise Christ's followers from the grave when he returns. Is there anyone? more trustworthy than God, we can trust him at his word. With everything taking place right now, we didn't have time to produce a new program this weekend. So we're going to air portions of a program we did last summer on God's Call for Men with guest Pastor Travis Allen. My dad was a godly man. And Lord willing, we'll have a future opportunity to talk with my mom and siblings about what made my dad a godly husband and father. And we also will let you know when we have a memorial service planned for my dad. But in the meantime, let's hear from Pastor Travis Allen of Grace Church in Greeley, Colorado. Travis, before we get to our topic on God's call for men, what is the crux of the difference? between those who believe in lordship salvation and free grace theology.
1: David, that is a it is a perennial debate, and no matter where it springs up within the the realm of Christianity, popularly understood, the one you're describing from twenty, thirty years ago cropped up within the dispensational camp. But even since then there has been with Tulia and Chevijin and some of the radical grace teaching Uh, It cropped up also in Presbyterian circles. So this is not denomination-specific. The crux of the issue really has to do with who is Jesus Christ, and is he the authority or is he not? And so I think the crux of the issue is authority, in particular, the authority of Jesus Christ. There is no coming to Christ on one's own terms. You come to Christ on his terms. And so Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Luke 9.23, when you deny yourself, that means you basically refuse to associate with yourself anymore. Everything that you were in your unregenerate, unredeemed state, all your dreams, hopes, ambitions, all your desires, you refuse that anymore. That is no longer the authority In your life is who you are who you were it's now all christ he's calling you he says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself that's the first thing but secondly it's clear it's if there was any question he makes it clear when he says deny yourself and then take up your cross people who were listening to him on that occasion when he spoke that they could call to mind when they whether children adults people in their older ages They could remember lines of prisoners carrying the crossbeam, the patibulum, to the place of crucifixion. Uh, Lines of criminals, or insurrectionists, with their crossbeam on their shoulders, walking to the place of execution. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm walking to the cross, I've got my patibulum on my shoulders, and I'm calling you to to get in line after me. You know, walk in my steps, and, and the goal is death to self. So, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me implies that the death to self is going to result in a new life, a changed life. There is following Christ after death to self. And so it's the life of Christ that we'll be living. We embrace him on his terms. There's no, there's no bifurcating Christ into Savior on the one hand and Lord on the other, as if you accept one and then can reject the other. He is Savior and Lord. It is who he is. David, I I don't know if you remember this, but in my own testimony of conversion, this was the issue for me. I hadn't heard of this debate in evangelicalism or anything. I mean, I was a young guy just before I turned 20. But I started to become convicted over my sin. So I pulled out my Bible to verify if I understood this gospel that I'd been taught when I was growing up and needed to wrestle with the truth of it all. But it very quickly answered the questions about Is this what the Bible's teaching? Is this what the Bible's saying? I understood the gospel, God's holiness. He's holy, and I, in contrast, am sinful. And because of my sin, I'm heading for eternity in hell. But God, in his kindness and his grace, he sent the second person of the Trinity, his son, to take on human flesh. He was conceived miraculously in the the Virgin Mary's womb and born in a natural way, lived a natural upbringing apart from any sin, no sin conducted a three-year ministry, and then he died for the sins of all who believe. He was buried, he rose from the dead, he preached to his people, and then he ascended into heaven 40 days later, and he's there at the right hand of God now. I understood all of that. I understood that the call to salvation means to repent of sin and put faith in Christ. The next nine months, though, after verifying that for myself, was a struggle with the issue of lordship. I knew that if I embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior, that meant that he's in charge. If he dies on the cross for my sin, he gives up his own life for me. How can I withhold my life as I claim his benefits for myself, but then withhold all that I am? So I I realized, and I struggled with that clear issue of lordship and authority in my life. I realized that embracing him meant embracing him for who he is. And he is Lord of the universe, Lord of all creation, and he was to be Lord of my life. And so after nine months of struggle, I eventually bowed the knee and embraced Christ. By God's grace, I embraced him.
0: Travis, thank you for explaining the doctrinal basis for lordship salvation, but also sharing your own personal salvation story as well, and how lordship salvation was the issue there. And as you were talking, I thought back to my own life, And it was the exact same issue for me. I believed in Jesus growing up, but he certainly was not my Lord until I was about 24 years old when I understood that I was a sinner and alienated from God. And I needed to repent of my sin and not only believe in Jesus as Savior, but I needed to surrender to him as Lord. I needed to get off the throne of my own life, and he needed to take his rightful place there. And I think that's when I was truly born again. Let me follow up to that question then, when you were talking about that, the issue of you knew Christ needed to be your Lord. You needed to be the master, the the sovereign reigning on the throne of your life, so to speak, rather than you. Those who believe in free grace theology will use these kinds of terms, a carnal Christian or a Mm -hmm. backslidden Christian. Yeah. How do we understand those terms in light of this debate of lordship, salvation, and free grace theology?
1: It's a great question. I remember growing up with that language in the churches I was attending. They would use those same terms to describe Christians who were just disobedient. They would call them, "Well, that's a carnal Christian," and we're we're praying for him. Or, "Yeah, I've been I've been backslidden for six months and doing a lot of drinking and partying, and all that." Honestly, even as a kid growing up, it kind of confused me. I think for myself, I mean, I. I don't know about you, but I became a Christian. (laughs) I I professed faith in Christ several times in my growing up years. I think I was baptized. Well, really, technically, I just got wet a couple times religiously, was dunked in a tank probably two, maybe three times growing up. And honestly, my life didn't change at all. I I mean, there was a speed bump there, a little bit of a a little bit more uh, informing of the conscience and, and trying real hard to read my Bible and be a good kid and all that. But Man, it did not take, and, and it didn't take because, truth be told, David, I love my sin. I love my sin, and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the Lord of my life and follow my own direction, my own ways. Well, the Bible describes that kind of a person as an unbeliever. <laughs> that, that's a person who hasn't been converted at all. One of the passages that's used as evidence, uh, biblical evidence for a carnal Christian is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but, but, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We can come back to that in a second. And then it goes on to say this in verse 14, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly to him, And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned the spiritual person judges all things but he himself is to be judged by no one so the translation i believe in the king james for the natural person is the carnal person and that's where people say well paul has in the corinthian church a mix of carnal christians and spiritually minded christians so the carnal christians are those who've accepted jesus as savior But they've put off the call to lordship, and they're not accepting him as lord, but they're still saved. The spiritual person is kind of on another level, on another plane. They're the ones living the the spiritual life and having victory and joy and all that. And so the spiritual person, Paul's making a distinction there. He is making a distinction. He's making a distinction between a believer in the church and an unbeliever in the church. says clearly in verse 14, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, folly to him. According to chapter 1, those who count the Word of God, the things of the Spirit of God, as folly and foolishness, they are the world. They are the ones who crucify Jesus Christ. And they are not able to understand those things revealed by the Spirit, because they're spiritually discerned, and they don't have a a new nature. They have not been regenerated and given spiritual life. So he's making a contrast between those in their midst who are really not regenerate and making a clear distinction between them and those who are regenerate. And those are the targets of Paul's ministry. When he says, we impart this, that is the things freely given us by God. We impart this verse 13 in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit it says, interpreting spiritual truths of those who are spiritual what it really literally says there is joining spiritual truths to those who are spiritually minded, those who are saved. So that's the text that's often used, I think misused, to support the idea of a carnal Christian. But it really has no basis in Scripture. A carnal Christian is a misnomer that's really talking about an unbeliever. Mm. A backslidden person is just someone who's sinning and needing to repent. All of 1 Corinthians is talking about errors in the church. And uh, if you ever have any concern about your church, troubles in the church, and sin in the church, read the book of 1 Corinthians and realize that your church is not the first church of Corinth or the Hmm. second church of Corinth. We really do receive a lot of comfort and instruction from this book. But 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's dealing with those who are coming into the Corinthian congregation say the wealthier people who are coming in and turning the Lord's Supper into an occasion for gluttony and drunkenness and, and self-centeredness. And those who are who are maybe the poorer classes, those who are the slave classes, they're coming in and all the food's eaten up and all the wine been drunk and people are drunk and acting folly. Uh, it's an absolute abomination of the Lord's table. And he says, those who eat and drink of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner will be judged and he says, that's why there are many among you who are weak, and some have fallen asleep. So he's talking about some who are Christians there, and yet they're caught up in sin, and they're offending the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're offending the Spirit. And because they're continuing on in that state and not repenting, God judges them. So Paul says there, look, if we are going to judge ourselves, we won't be judged. So let's examine ourselves. Let's see if we're actually in the faith. Let's examine ourselves with regard to our sin. A backslidden, there can be those who backslide, who who fall into a pattern of sin. But Matthew 18, Luke 17, our job as fellow believers is to confront the person in sin, in love, to call them back to a faithful way of living. And a true Christian will respond to correction. Otherwise, they will be Excommunicated from the church after step one, two, three, and four listed in Matthew eighteen fifteen to seventeen. There, if he doesn't repent, then he is to be to you a tax collector and, unbel- or mm-hmm. a, and, a, and a gentile. I mean, basically, we're judging him as a church to be an unbeliever. So there can be those who are backslidden, but I'd say it's for a brief time. And really, what they need to do is stop sinning and repent.
0: Well answered, Travis Allen, with us today here on the Christian Real View Radio Program. He is the pastor of Grace Church in Greeley, Colorado. Uh, Their website is gracegreeley.org. We also have them linked uh, at our website, thechristianworldview.org. Okay, we need to take a short break for some ministry announcements. Stay tuned. Much more coming up with Pastor Travis Allen right after this. What is the Christian Worldview radio program really about? Fundamentally, it's about impacting people, families, churches, with the life and eternity-changing truth of God's Word. We know the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message that saves us from God's wrath, by God's grace, for God's glory. And we know the Bible is the inspired word of God, providing the only way to think and live to the glory of God. We are a nonprofit, listener supported ministry. If you would like to help us impact listeners with the biblical worldview and the gospel, consider becoming a Christian worldview partner who regularly give a specified amount to the ministry. As a thank you, Christian Worldview partners automatically receive many of the resources featured on the program throughout the year. To become a Christian Worldview partner, call us toll-free 1-888-646-2233 or visit thechristianworldview.org. Scripture commands that children are to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Offering biblically sound resources for children is one of our top ministry priorities. At our store at thechristianrealview.org, you will find carefully selected children's Bibles and books, along with video and audio resources. Check out the Bible infographics for kids' books, Little Pilgrim's Progress, and the popular Adam Raccoon set. Theo is a 15-episode video series addressing key doctrines of the faith that is a must-see for children and adults. Satan and the world are bent on capturing the heart and mind of your child. Instead, get sound resources that will train them up in the way they should go. Browse and order at thechristianworldview.org or give us a call for recommendations at one 646 2233 That's one 646 2233 or thechristianworldview.org. Welcome back to The Christian Realview. I'm David Wheaton. Be sure to visit our website, thechristianrealview.org, where you can subscribe to our free weekly email and annual print letter, order resources for adults and children, and support the ministry. Our topic today is God's Call for Men with our guest, Pastor Travis Allen from Grace Church in Greeley, Colorado. Travis, just one more question about this issue of Lordship Salvation. If you're saved... Christ will be and must be your Lord. How significant of an issue this actually is today, whether in the evangelical movement, even beyond just the kind of the the debates that's been going on, maybe in more theological circles on this, you know, MacArthur versus Ryrie or something. But how significant of an issue this is for a church to be very clear about, perhaps what this has wrought this idea of well you can be saved but you know Christ won't necessarily be your lord you might be a carnal christian what it's done to the evangelical movement or evangelical churches
1: yeah you know david it's absolutely vital that we understand that Christ is the head of the church and that we've got the right Christ that he truly is the lord of our local churches yeah this issue came up in the protestant reformation And, you know, you know the five solas that came out of the Protestant Reformation, one of them was Solus Christus. And why? Why did they need to reaffirm Christ alone? Christ alone in distinction to what? Christ alone is the head of the Church, in distinction to popes and councils. Well, if we update that about 500 years and bring it into our own American evangelical world, it's Christ alone is the head of the Church, not the congregation, by... 50% 50% or 51% vote, that's not the direction of the Holy Spirit is a 51% vote among a, a, you know, a disobedient population. It's, this is not a democracy. It is Christ alone is the head of the church, and he calls the shots. And how do we know what his will is? Well, it's very clearly revealed in Scripture. And so recognizing and acknowledging his place of lordship, I mean, if he died for the church, that means he's in charge. He gets to call the shots. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, he condemns them because he says, you put up with it readily enough. And um, he's indicting the Corinthians on this in this regard, that they are accepting a, a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Well, a different gospel is Galatians chapter 1. It's no gospel at all. A different spirit is, if it's not from the spirit of God, it's from the underworld. It's from it's from hell itself. And if it's another Jesus, it's what's called a false messiah. It's called an antichrist. So we have got to get Jesus right. We've got to get the issue of the lordship of Jesus Christ right. And it's absolutely crucial, considering Solus Christus, that Christ alone is the head of the church. We, every church has to get this right.
0: Thank you for giving more uh, clarification on that issue, Travis, and Travis Allen with us today on The Christian worldview. View. Now let's transition, Travis, toward really the, the main topic we wanted to discuss today, God's call for men, or biblical manhood, biblical masculinity. And there has been a, an attack on men in our society for the last 50 or 60 years. It's called toxic masculinity. Or destroy the patriarchy. Um, There is a diminishing, uh, putting down of men and fathers, uh, either as unnecessary or sort of just the kind of the grown-up boys in the home. So maybe you could just set the stage and describe the arc of what has been taking place in our society over the last 50 to 60 years, or maybe longer, with regards to God's call for a man from a biblical definition, what's been going on, and why has this been taking place?
1: When you describe the Ark, I think the Ark consists of a number of different influences to this you can, you might describe it as a war against men uh, that's been taking place for a number of decades now. and I, I would just want to say very quickly on the heels of that, that there's been a war against women, too. There's a war against masculinity. There's a war against femininity, and you might just kind of wrap it up into one package and say, there is an absolute war against humanity going on right now. And, and where does that come from? Obviously, it comes from the enemy of our souls and the enemy of God and the enemy of, of all that's true and right and good. And it's, it's the devil himself. He hates the image of God in us, and so he wants to just stamp it out, destroy it, mar it, defile it, uh, because he hates God. He can't get to God. And so he goes after humanity. So if he can turn us against one another, men against women, women against men, if he can turn us all against the weakest and the most vulnerable in our society, which is who? It's the child in the womb. So abortion is an attack on humanity. If if any of them escape the danger of the womb and start to grow as a child, well, now we're going after them in society with the transgender movement and totally destroying their bodies with whether it's chemical modification or surgical mutilation of these children. It's child abuse. It's just destroying people. So this has been going on for a long time. And there's several ways that contributing factors, I'd say, to the arc uh, toward this all-out war against humanity and the image of God in us. And I'd say, I'd say first of all, you can see in, with regard to men, not taking up their biblical role to be men. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we see that God designed Adam to be a leader and a teacher and a provider and a protector of his wife. He's to be out in front. He's to be taking personal responsibility, ownership of solving problems. He's to love her by leading, love her by saying, the buck stops with me get a job, protect your family, take care of your family, solve problems, care for them, be gentle, kind in your leadership. And a woman by God's design in Genesis 1 and 2 is to be a fitting helper to her husband. She's there to, to support and to strengthen and to uh, contribute counsel and wisdom and effort and strength to his leadership. That's what she's designed to be and to do, and that's what she thrives in doing and loves to do. And when those children come into the home, she raises those children. She has a nurturing nature where she loves them, wants to raise them, nurture them, care for them, comfort them, both man and woman together in that marriage, then raise those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's the design. So there's been, among men, there can be errors going either way, either being too passive and abdicating their role and responsibility and giving it over to their wife or just being lazy. On the other side of the ditch that they can fall in is to be uh, domineering tyrants in the home and not being gentle and kind with their wife. So that's, that's an error. Women on the other side, can, they, they don't react well to that bad leadership, whether it's a passive or domineering. So there's a rebellion that takes place. In our own day, I think coming out of two world wars, men coming back from warfare, they can throw themselves into the protector-provider role without any, you know, love and care and gentleness toward their families. And then that means that they are commanding their wife and their children what to do without informing them biblically why to do it and helping them by teaching and by communicating and by showing modeling by example. I think coming out of these most recent wars and modern warfare where technology has lifted to a level that many women got involved in the war effort, Uh, many women went back into the workplace and they've started to say because of the equalizing effect of technology that the traditional male strengths uh, that required their strength in the field or in the forest and hunting or raising, uh, you know, building a farm that's no longer in the cities and an urban environment. Now both men and women can be equally adept at programming or typing things in a computer or doing things in their office environment. And so I think there are a lot of, a lot of things coming out of this in this modern age after World War II. A lot of the prosperity and a lot of the technology has contributed to an equalizing effect where women kind of think, well, what's so special about a man? So. I think there are some of those issues that have taken place. Carl Truman's recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and the abbreviated version, Strange New World, he paints a picture of of an arc that's been happening for hundreds of years, coming from Rousseau, and through the Enlightenment, and through psychology, that shows uh, people turning inward, conforming their outward reality to what their inward feelings are. Uh, That's what he calls the modern self, the, the psychologized self, or the Uh, expressive individual. And so that's contributing to the whole picture as well. All of that creates a, a situation that has, in our society, tended more and more to favor women and to fight for what they call equal opportunity to elevate women and give them all the same, not just opportunities, but outcomes of men. So pay outcomes and job opportunity outcomes and all those things. At the same time, I think men, I mean, you could see this in the sitcoms where who's the butt of all the jokes? It's the father. Uh, the man is the idiot and the knucklehead in the, in the situation that brings all the, all the comedy into the sitcom. And it's the woman who's put together and she's the one who's got all the answers. So you see this kind of war against men. You see an elevation of women. You see this antipathy and contest and arm wrestle between them. And I think that that's contributed to a situation where even today men are pushing back against that narrative. They are tired of having a finger wagged in their face. they're tired of being called toxic and there's a corner of the internet called the Manosphere, and you have different blogs and pundits and podcasters, you know growing long beards and you know flexing muscles and getting tatted up and you know, talking about their guns and all the rest, and it's almost like they're trying to outman, be even more toxic, and push back against this uh, feminized culture that we have. So it's absolutely a complete mess and such a departure from Scripture. I think that that's what we in the Church need to model for them, is to go right back to Scripture, go back to Genesis 1 and 2, to see what God said, what God designed, and try, by His grace, to pursue... His design and to live as a biblical man and a biblical woman.
0: Travis Allen with us today on the Christian Realview, the pastor of Grace Church in Greeley, Colorado. He's not only a pastor, but he's married for many years and has five children. He also served our country in the U.S. Navy as part of the SEAL teams. The website for his church is gracegreeley.org, greeley spelled L E Y.org. We have it linked as well on the ChristianRealview.org. Okay, just a short break, but we will be back with more with Pastor Travis Allen right after this. David Wheaton here. For a limited time, we are offering My Boy Ben for a donation of any amount to The Christian Worldview. The book is the true story of a yellow lab that I had back when I was competing on the professional tennis tour. It's about relationships with Ben, my parents, with a childhood friend I would eventually marry, but ultimately with God who causes all things, even the hard things, to work together for good. You can order a signed and personalized copy for yourself or for your friend who enjoys a good story, loves dogs, sports, or the outdoors, and most of all needs to hear about God's grace and the gospel. My Boy Ben is owned by The Christian Realview. It's 264 pages, hardcover, and retails for $24.95. To order, go to thechristianrealview.org or call 1-888-646-2233, or write to Box 401, Excelsior, Minnesota, 55331. Here's a unique resource and product for you from The Christian Worldview. We put the top 15 programs of 2022 on a great-looking bamboo USB flash drive adorned with the Christian Worldview logo. Programs like, What is the Christian's Duty to God Versus Government? 12 mega clues that Jesus' return is nearer than ever. How America's new woke religion is not good news. Transhumanism and the quest to be like God. And what really happens when you're born again? Simply plug the flash drive into the USB port on your Windows or Mac device, and you will have the top programs at your fingertips. Plus, with the large 4GB capacity, you'll have plenty of extra space to load your own files. The flash drive is $25, and you can order by calling 1-888-646-2233, going to or writing to Box 401, Excelsior, Minnesota, 55331. Thanks for joining us today on The Christian Real View. I'm David Wheaton, the host. Just a reminder that today's program and past programs are archived at our website, thechristianrealview.org. Transcripts and short takes are also available. Now back to the interview with Pastor Travis Allen. Travis, you mentioned the word feminized. This is how men have become, not all men, of course, this is a generalization, but there's been a feminization of men. And that's impacted the church, Travis, the evangelical church. I mean, not only do you see just female pastors now within evangelical churches, Rick Warren, they just nominated a a man and a woman to lead his church. They've nominated three female elders at their church, the largest Southern Baptist church in the country, one of the most prominent pastors in the country. This is going to become more and more common, sadly, uh, but that is the case. Uh, You see service styles, in evangelical churches today, they are highly geared, most of them are highly geared towards an emotional experience, hmm. you know, tweaking people's emotions, getting them to feel something. Uh, the sermons are based on you know, felt needs that people have about their marriage, their raising kids, and, and so forth and so on. So it's not so much doctrinal verse by verse, hear the facts, believe it, follow it, obey, But a little more along the lines or a lot more along the lines of, you know, trying to to figure out people's felt needs in a life and meeting those needs. I would even go so far to say that men are even presenting themselves in a more feminine way with the tighter pants, the softer and thinner types of clothes they wear, the hairstyle, just the way they carry themselves. It just, to me, looks more feminine. And the Bible is clear on this, that men are not to look or act like women. And when I say that, that doesn't mean that a man has to have huge biceps or be some jock athlete or shoot guns or jump out of airplanes or whatever society may have defined a man as in the past. So how is this feminization of men impacting the church?
1: I'd like to address it from two different sides and, and really not talk so much about what the external appearance looks like. Those those things can change with time and culture. And we wouldn't want to say women wearing pants today, that's masculine in their cross dressing or something like that. It's So those things get a little bit tricky. Just to affirm your point, David, I know what you mean. When you, you know it, when you see it and you see a, a woman who is dressing very masculinely and the question comes to mind, hmm. What's going on in her heart? <laughs> which, direction is she, which direction is she thinking? By just how she portrays herself, by how she walks, by how she acts, uh, acts a certain way, it, it looks more masculine. Same thing with men. You can see a man who's, who looks very feminine. He's kind of lilting his way down the street. And you think, uh, what's wrong with that guy? So I get what you're saying. And in our culture, in our society, uh, there's different things that's, that give an outward appearance of masculinity or femininity where i see this coming into the church and into popular conversation as well is that the feminine impulse or the feminine instinct is to soften things uh, that's definitely the you know i definitely see that in my wife and my girls is to is is in their nurturing nature is to to care for the little ones and to care for the hurting and to put band-aids on boo-boos and kiss you know kiss it and and make the the child's crying to make the child feel better, and, and it's an immediate compassion. The masculine impulse is, you know, kid falls down and gets hurt, it's to, hey, rub some dirt on it and get back in the game. That's life. Life's tough, and there's a compassion there in the man that has a long-term compassion. So I'd say short-term compassion versus long-term compassion, that's the feminine versus the masculine impulse. You see that coming all into the church and the popular cultural conversation where The the feminine tendency to nurture and to soften, there are some things that need to be said that if you do try to file off the sharper edges, if you do try to make it less angular and more rounded, you actually distort the message. So there are some very strong things that Jesus has to say that need to be said in exactly the tone that he delivered them. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites! There is no softening of that. And if you have a church that can't stand hard things being said because it's been so overtaken with this, got to make everybody feel good, nurture them, make them, you know, affirm them, you're, you're actually going to be unfaithful to what the scripture teaches about who Jesus actually is. On the other side of it, if you try to inject steroids into Jesus and make him look like a gun-toting, cigar-smoking, scotch-drinking, long-bearded you know, ex-military guy who's ready to shoot everything and take vengeance, that's also a distortion of the picture. I mean, he is the one who said, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So there's a distortion on either side, and I think that the number of decades of the feminizing to soften everything, to affirm the congregation, to affirm people and not say the hard things and the hard truths, there's been a more recent reaction against that with men who want to amplify masculine edge, and I think it just distorts the picture of Christ in another way. You know, Paul tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14, he says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. He's saying that, by the way, to a church— the church is pretty much 50-50, male and female, but he's telling the men and the women, there's a masculine virtue that you need. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then the next verse, let all that you do be done in love. That has the right spirit, the right tone that brings everything together to love God and to love others. So if we want a good picture of what true manhood is, of what masculine virtue looks like, we look to Christ himself. He is the ideal man. He is the one that we all aspire to, men and women. We aspire to be like him. We want to see less of ourselves, the death of the self. It is the life of Christ lived in and through us. That's what it is to be a Christian. And so true manhood is found in Jesus Christ. And keep in mind, Jesus Christ did not live for self. He lived for God, and he sacrificed himself
0: for others. So loving God, loving others, that's what it is to be a man. We are to be like Christ. That is the goal of the Christian life. Well, of course, for man, for a man to be like Christ is he's another man. Is there any distinction between a actually a Christian woman trying to become like Christ? What should a woman look to?
1: A woman is designed by God differently than than a man, and we see that clearly in Genesis 1 and 2 in how God designed Adam to be a leader, a teacher, a communicator, uh, to, to be out in front, and a woman to be his fitting helper, to serve the interests of the home, to serve the man's leadership. That's what it is in a home, in a marriage, and because God designed it that way, God designed the man to do the things that pertain to his role, and he got designed the woman to do the things that are pertain to her role. So she's going to be, by nature, uh, tend to be more nurturing and have, have a greater concern for short-term compassion and those kind of things, and that's exactly who she should be. She just needs to do it uh, as a Christian. And so her love toward God and her love toward others is worked out through the life and the distinctions of true womanhood. And so there's so many passages in the scripture. That address that and show a woman in her role, whether it's as a as a wife or uh, if God gives children as a mother, those are primary. But we also see women who either had raised their children or God did not give children, and they're still serving the interests of of others. So whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in the church, uh, she's still serving distinctively as a woman. Uh, It is not a liability for her to be a woman; it's an absolute privilege and a gift of God for her to be in a role as a woman.
0: That's all we have time for with Travis today. And he is an example of a godly man. And I would encourage you to connect with his preaching by going to our website, thechristianrealview.org where you will find a link over to the church he pastors, which is Grace Church in Greeley, Colorado. Now, on this issue of God's call for men, We just need to go back to Genesis, to the very beginning, where God established so many things about who he is, what it means to be male and female, marriage, and so much more. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15, says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Skipping forward one verse, Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God created Adam first. He was to be a provider and a protector of his wife and his home. But Adam needed a helper. And this is not an issue of worth or value, having a wife as a helper, but it's an issue of God's perfect design for marriage and family which, by the way, then leads to societal cohesion, which is falling apart today. A biblical man is called to be a leader of his family, and some who aspire to it with the right character qualities are to be leaders in the church as well. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications of an elder. Just by definition, an elder in the church must be a godly man. So, Let's read what he describes a godly man to be. He writes, If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be, here are the character qualities, above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, contentious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Verse four, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And it goes on from there in the description of a godly man or elder. Whether a man is an elder or not, the lesson here is that A godly man is all about character issues, not necessarily career success, strong muscles, or athleticism. Biblical men are to be truth speakers and truth obeyers, not truth softeners. They are to be strong and courageous and not fear men or be moved by cultural changes or pressure. And yes, they are called to love their wives and raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, complementary to this is God's call for women. Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So, while there are certain character qualities that men and women are to aspire to, some are to be more prominent in men, others are to be more prominent in women. God's way is the right way. It always brings us the most joy and Him the most glory. And Travis said it well when he stated that the purpose of the Christian life is to become more like Christ. So, for men, Read the word to know Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, strive to become more like him. That is what a godly man is. Now in the remaining moments, just a few comments on the issue of lordship salvation, and I want to accurately describe the non-lordship position, which is, you believe in Jesus and you're saved. Christ being lord of your life may not come right away, but over time. But I think that is an error. I understand the Bible to teach that unless you obey Jesus as Lord, you really haven't been saved. In a sense, the term lordship salvation is redundant. Salvation comes when one believes in Christ as Savior and Lord. Christ is Lord, whether one believes it or not. So one who believes in Christ obviously believes in and follows him for who he is, Lord. There's a nuance here. Yes, belief in Christ saves you, but belief implies and includes more than mere intellectual assent to facts, as in, I believe Jesus existed, I believe he was the Son of God, I believe he died for sins and rose again. You know who else believes that? The demons all believe that, and they shudder over it. But Jesus isn't their Lord, they're not saved. Obeying Christ as Lord is the key evidence of salvation. There is one throne in your heart. Who is reigning there? Is he your master, your ruler, your final authority, your Lord, or are you? Yes, the believer increasingly surrenders to Christ's lordship over time. That's called sanctification. But one can't be saved without believing he is Lord of all and Lord of your life. Not adding to the gospel, That is the gospel. And as I mentioned earlier, that was my own story. I believed in Jesus when I was young, but Christ was not the Lord, the master of my life until I was 24 years old when I realized my sinfulness and I believed in him. And I knew the crucial hinge point was to obey him as Lord. That is the hard part. I knew I couldn't do what I wanted. I couldn't be my own Lord going forward, that Christ needed to be the Lord of my life. And the more I heard Steve Lawson and Travis talk about this and thought about this and looked to scripture, this issue is a matter of getting the gospel right. Churches and teachers who preach belief in Jesus for salvation but don't include the call to obey him as Lord are preaching a non-saving gospel. John 3 verse 36 states this so well, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice how the second half of that verse doesn't repeat the word believe, but it changes it to he who does not obey the son will not see life. So believing in Jesus as your savior means you are committing to obey him because he is Lord. If you are a believer in Jesus, but he is not your Lord, I would urge you today to repent of that to not only believe in Jesus as Savior, but to commit to following Him as Lord. And He will help you do that because when you are saved, He gives you His Holy Spirit so that you are able to follow Him as Lord. Thank you for joining us today on the Christian View. In just a moment, there will be all kinds of information on this nonprofit radio ministry. Let's be encouraged in a world where God's call for men is under strong attack. We know where to go for the truth. Jesus Christ and his word are the same yesterday and today and forever. So until next time, think biblically, live accordingly, and stand firm. The mission of the Christian worldview is to sharpen the biblical worldview of Christians and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We hope today's broadcast encouraged you toward that end. To hear a replay of today's program, order a transcript, or find out what must I do to be saved, go to ChristianWorldview.org or call toll free 1 888 646 2233. The Christian Worldview is a listener supported nonprofit radio ministry furnished by the Overcomer Foundation. To make a donation, become a Christian Worldview partner, order resources, subscribe to our free newsletter, or contact us, visit thechristianworldview.org, call 1-888-646-2233, or write to Box 401, Excelsior, Minnesota, 55331. That's Box 401, Excelsior, Minnesota, 55331. Thanks for listening to The Christian Worldview.